I'm Elena Lansberg-Lewis, your host of Grandmothers on the Move, the podcast that kicks old stereotypes to the curb. Come meet these creative, outrageous, authentic, adventurous, irreverent, and powerful disruptors and influencers. Grandmothers, from the living room to the courtroom, making powerful contributions in every walk of life. We know them most intimately as loving caregivers, the older women in our lives with a thousand stories about their grandchildren and pictures in their purses. In this podcast, you'll come to know even more about our grandmothers. They are galvanized, determined, and are guaranteed to get you thinking. What drives them? What are they up to? What is the potential of grandmother power, and how is it changing the world? Grandmothers are on the move. You don't want to be left behind. Hi, it's Ilana. Welcome back to Grandmothers on the Move. And today I'm speaking to Erzsébet Andriansky, who is in Hungary and is Hungarian, and has a quite extraordinary story to tell. When I was reading the short story that I read from you, it was extraordinary to me how much life you have lived and how many interesting and challenging experiences you've had. So just to give people who are listening a bit of a sense before we jump into a conversation, you lived through the civil war in Lebanon for 25 years. You've actually experienced being an internally displaced person, and you speak several languages, including Arabic. I know, and I want to hear much more from you about this, that you became an aid worker in quite precarious and often challenging and dangerous situations at the age of 52. And in this moment in the world, when there's so much instability, I think you bring a perspective and a life experience that would be extraordinarily interesting and important. So welcome to Grandmothers on the Move, Erzsébet, it's a pleasure to have you with us. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me and listening to me. Well, as I was saying to you earlier, that's part of the objective of the podcast, to bring the voices and expertise and experiences of older women, grandmothers to the fore, because I think particularly in the times we live in, we're losing out on a lot of important observations and insights that you have. And so perhaps we can start with that you married, moved to Lebanon and lived there during the time of the Civil War. And I'm interested to hear about how you ended up being an internally displaced person with small children and what that experience was like and how you lived through it and what it changed for you in life. You know, I moved to Lebanon in 78 when there was extended ceasefire and we were hoping that that was the end of the war. You know, every single ceasefire meant that oh, no, this is the final one and there will be no more clashes, no more problems. Of course, we were wrong, but by then we were in Lebanon. I had a six-month-old son and uh, the things, they just got worse and worse and worse. So first, I gave birth in 82 to my second son on the day of a huge massacre. So when I went to the delivered baby, and my husband went to get the pediatrician. At that time, there were no cell phones. He had to go himself to get the pediatrician to the hospital. And I went myself. They just told me at the entrance of the hospital, just get out of here. There are no rooms. There was what 
on the aisle. There was not one single chair to sit, but I was just screaming. And I said, well, but the head is out. I am giving birth. I don't care. So they just put me on a table. I had the baby. Luckily, everything was just fine very fast. They cleaned up the baby. They wrapped the baby. And I didn't even change my clothes. I just went home as I was. And three months later, we had to run away because the place where we were was actually bombed. And that was a very interesting experience to me because I was cooking. It was during the day. And my neighbor, who I think had some sort of military connections, and he knew that a heavy bombing will start. So he came to me, knocked on my door and said to me, Madame, please leave the house. Take your children because in 50 minutes, they will start bombing the city. And I looked at him and I said to him, I'm sorry, I have a cake in the oven. And he looked at me and very, very unusually from an Arab man, he took me from my shoulders and just shook the hell out of me. And please listen to me, do it now. Because I just I just couldn't believe it or something. So finally, I left first to a close-by place. By then, my husband was with us because first he was at his clinic and he wasn't with us. But by then, when I had to leave, he came home. So we all went. I stayed there for three months. Again, I have to say something very personal, that war or a big disaster brings people together. Everybody helps everybody. I do remember several occasions when totally unknown people would look for shelter in my house. And I would, of course, open my house and give them tea and never ask any reason why they stayed or how long they will stay. And it was the same with me. So in a way, in a big trouble, Yes, people stick to one another and help each other. It's a very traumatic experience, especially when you have very young children, to be displaced and to find yourself fleeing for safety. Yes. And I wonder how that influenced your decision when, and I know you say that it was completely accidental that you got into the business of being an aid worker much later in life at 52. How did that happen? So I didn't think of myself, uh, you know, as a previous IDP or a refugee or something. This memory came back much later when I was actually running a camp. This is when it came back and it actually influenced very, very much my attitude towards the people who were in the camp, who were themselves the refugees. But the time when I became a lead worker, I just didn't think about it. Why did I become accidentally an unwilling lead worker? It's a very interesting story. When I was in Lebanon, and it was like 2002, November, before the 2003 March Iraq war started, and a lady called me from Hungary. And at that time, I had been working for three years in Iraq with a Lebanese passport representing three different Lebanese companies as a kind of commercial manager. Those were all engineering companies. And we were working with the Oil for Food program of the UN during yes. the embargo. So this lady... She was told if anybody knows anything about Iraq before the war actually started, I am the one. So she called me from Hungary in Lebanon and 
In short, she told me that probably the Hungarian government is going to be a part of the coalition forces and the Hungarian government would like to have humanitarian assistance as well as uh, the part of rebuilding Iraq. And during the conversation, I tried to convince her that more than 26 million people were living in Iraq at that time. I mean, obviously, it's a livable country. Yes, there will be shortages of electricity or maybe shortages of medicine or something. But if you just go in as an aid worker to assess certain situation for a week or two, I mean, it's absolutely livable and it's absolutely... Uh, fine. But I finished the conversation. I told her that if you are scared, which I sensed that she was very much scared, I told her, don't take the job. Because if you're scared, you cannot really do a good job. So we finished the conversation. Time passed. Uh, It was just before the war started. I was already here in Hungary because my mother wasn't feeling well. And the lady found me here in my parents' house. My name is very uncommon. There is only one family in Hungary with these names. So she found me and she said to me, well, you're right. I will not take the job, but would you? And of course, I said, yes, of course, (laughs) I will. So I went into Iraq three days before the invasion started. And after that, of course, I wrote the report, I made the assessment and kind of started to be an aid worker. Very unwillingly, I wasn't sure what I was doing and I just wanted to do a good job. So eventually, after like a year, I started to look for some sort of courses to educate how people do humanitarian assistant properly. So I found accidentally a course of the Fordham University that was held in Geneva for a month. Now, you have to know that the main reason I took the job to go into Iraq because I needed the money. I did need the money because I wanted to support my children to fulfill their own dreams, which were different than their father's dreams. That's a huge life choice to decide to leave your husband, take up work that, that actually puts you in conflict zones, a whole new area of work for you, and all because you had a different vision for your children. And what was that, Erjavet? When my children started to grow up, and actually my first one graduated, my husband started to push, do this, study this. You know, this is going to be a good future for you. You will make a lot of money. And I was still not sure if I should stand up for my children. But when my second son got into the same age that he wanted to become something else than his father's dream was, there were really huge fights. So by then, I was ready to make a choice. Because my husband said, oh, if you don't do what I want you to do, then I won't support you financially. So this is when I just, sorry, I just told my children, we sink or swim together. I am here with you and I'm going to support you. And I did. And the third one came up 
which is a girl. Again, my husband then said that, oh, well, she will just get married. And I said, well, Maya, what is it that you would like to become? And sure enough, she said she wanted to become a forensic expert. She just chose a kind of lab work about forgery and industrial forgery. So she was a part of forensic science that suits her. How long did you work as an aid worker and where did you work? I worked basically for like 15 years. Uh, I worked Iraq war. I, I worked in Iraq so many times in different missions, but I was in Fallujah of all the lovely places. I was in Fallujah for more than a year as a aid worker. And I worked in Palestine and Lebanon and Syria. And you had written something that was interesting to me because it resonated strongly for me and my own feeling about development work and humanitarian aid, which was your strong conviction that it's the people who are experiencing oppression, displacement, and challenges and atrocities in their circumstances who actually have to be at the center of the solutions. That struck me because it's something that I believe in very strongly. And I wonder how did you arrive at that conclusion? And what did it mean for your involvement in the work that you were doing as an aid worker? It was very easy for me, to be honest, because I do speak Arabic. So I I always listen. Most of my works, except the tsunami or the earthquake and bam, but the other humanitarian works, they were all in Arab countries. And it was very easy for me to realize that these people, they are very smart. They know the situation much better. They know the needs much better. And all I have to do is just to listen and kind of negotiate what the humanitarian agency's goal and goal is in the intervention and what their goal is. I always felt very suspicious about people who would come in without any background knowledge or very limited and very superficial background knowledge about area or about the problem or conflict. And because the money is in their hand, Mm -hmm. they just kind of pretend that they can do anything. Mm -hmm. But I would love to take these people back to the interventions that they had. Were they actually sustainable? I mean, you and I know that more than 50% of those humanitarian interventions, they just failed the minute money was out. I know from the work that I've done that, in fact, your perspective is quite an unusual one. It's becoming more common, I'm happy to say, but your perspective at the time would have been extremely unusual. Oh, yes, it was definitely very, very unusual. And I wasn't very popular between my colleagues. Several of my posts, actually, I left because uh, I was like, you have to write these weekly reports of what you have done. And when I read the summary of the different weekly reports, you know, put into a summarized one, I realized that my results were kind of, you know, magnified or changed. And I just didn't want to be a part of it. And the person, my boss, whom I submitted my weekly report, I questioned him and he just thought that it wasn't enough. It should be bigger or nicer. I confronted him and finally I said, fine, if you think like this, then I'm resigning right now. Wow. And I know that that's a huge step to take because... 
once, once you're in this world, partly it's the financial security, of course, to walk away from it because it's not insignificant, yes. but also it's a compelling way of life, isn't it? It has its own momentum. Oh, it does. It does. And at the very beginning of, of our conversation, you asked me something. What am I doing now? And I do feel that I'm doing nothing. I know that it's not really nothing. But because I'm used to this very high level of adrenaline and, you know, troubleshooting and killing and bombing and whatever, being shot at and all that. Right. I just feel that it's nothing. I'm doing nothing. Even thus far in the story of what you've told me, and I know it's just a fraction of your life, there's an extraordinary determination in all of the steps that you took and a real commitment to your own integrity and a kind of ideological perspective. And yes. How did that come to pass? You know, I, I think I was always like this. I thought about it a lot, but I have to say a part of the reason why I fell in love with my husband was that he was at that time coming from a war-torn country, that he needed me. And I remember going to the Palestinian camp like one or two weeks after I first got into Lebanon because I was truly interested how these people can survive. And I remember like spending my own money simply buying nice yarn and nice material for women who were actually supporting a lot of children. They were widows and they were always making these cross stitches, beautiful things. I don't know why, but even when I first came to Hungary, I would come and work as a volunteer with homeless people. It's something that I was born with. When I told you in my email that after I started to really work in humanitarian aid, I felt that all the crazy things that I have been interested in and done and learned and my life experiences, they came kind of together helped me to be good work, a good aid work, a really good one. Yeah, that actually makes a lot of sense when you put it that way. And now you still work. Yes. Um, you work as an engineer, which I understand is your first profession. I wonder now as a grandmother with grandchildren, with all of the different places you've lived, the different things that you've done, did having grandchildren change Anything for you in the way you felt about yourself, the work that you've done, the future that you're looking at? I think they are, in a way, too small. Uh, yes, when they were born, they made a lot of personal change when I became a grandmother. To be honest, one of my grandchild, he has serious uh, liver problem. His liver doesn't work. So I had to step in two years ago to help my daughter-in-law and my young grandchild to nurse him back to life. And I was the one who could step in, which was very rewarding. He is the apple of my eyes. It's more my children's still, because I want them to be proud of where they come from, from our union, from being half Lebanese, half Hungarian, because the political climate doesn't help them. At least I would like my children to understand that it is something they gained a lot by being from a mixed culture, from a mixed family. 
you're living in a country where the rise of the extreme right is really prevalent. And I wonder, from all that you've done and all that you've seen, what do you think about this? And I know that you're painting and drawing pictures. And I wonder if you can also explain how your art has entered into your own reflection and response to the increasing xenophobia and intolerance. I'm very proud of living in Lebanon. And I kind of try to tell everybody who listens that, you know, there are just good people everywhere. It's the same. We are just the same simple human beings. Just the circumstances are different. I try to tell everybody who listens that just by accidentally being born in Hungary doesn't mean that you're better, you're superior. I'm trying to open people's eyes even to the facts that it's okay to have a different religion. It's not scary. Just accept it. You know very much if you have been in a humanitarian mission very far, like in South Sudan, I I really had nothing to do than work. But there are Saturdays and Sundays. So I just picked up the drawing that and the painting that I had done before. And I used to be very good in it until I went to the university and engineering just got me into drawing with rulers and straight lines. And <laughs> so when I went to a mission, I picked up painting again and more and more I started to paint. And today I do live in Hungary. I found that painting from my pictures that I have taken gives me a kind of satisfaction. So as I wrote to you last year, there was an exhibition. They wanted to take some of my pictures and I sent this one in. It is actually a pastel of Afghan women in burqas waiting. And in the focus of the picture is a mother and a little girl. And she is kind of lovingly caressing her little daughter, just as human, like every other mother would be doing anywhere in the world. They didn't want to put this picture. And I said, fine, if you don't, then I'm out of the exhibition. I don't care. (laughs) Right. Now that I've been speaking to you for a while, that sounds like you. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yes. So I do use it in a way to express my view on other nations. Right. And just as we come to a close In terms of your own experience as someone who started aid work at a later stage in life, what are your own reflections about that? I mean, I never thought that I would be someone who would travel to these places, work on and try to to make a hospital work or fix a school. I never thought about it. I really felt very bad chance, especially when I realized that how much all my life experiences helped me being good, or at least better or more sensible than a lot of people that I have seen in that profession. And how do I see other people relating to me as being an older person? Again, I think that this profession was made for actually older people. It wasn't made for the young, adventurous people who come out of university. I think it's a big, big, big mistake to take those young people because most of them, university graduates, 
I have seen so many of them. They just don't know what they are doing. They don't understand. They don't have the life experience. Yes, they make relatively a lot more money than what they would have made at home. And I always thought what we create this way is a lot of unhappy young people because eventually they think that they deserve the kind of money that they are making and they think that they do deserve the respect that they get in these missions, which actually is not the respect for them, but for the money that they actually present to those people. So I think this profession should be made for people who are older. That's a fascinating observation and makes a world of sense. I'm so glad that we've had this conversation. I can't thank you enough for taking the time, Erjava, to share with us some of your observations and experiences in life. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you very, very much to give me the opportunity. I'm really happy to talk to you. And well, whatever way I can, I can help, I'm here, I'm ready, and I will continue listening to those wonderful grandmothers on the move. Thank you for your work, Elana. Thanks for listening. I'm Elana Landsberg-Lewis, your host of Grandmothers on the Move. If you want to find out more about me or the podcast, go to grandmothersonthemove.com and come back next week for another episode.